You guys, it has been such a great week. Uh, my first week here at Beaverton, uh, it has been amazing. I have to say, what an amazing staff team. You guys already knew this, but um, just getting to know the staff here and being around them, it's been just, a, it's been an awesome week and um, just so many different people welcoming. In fact, one of the coolest things on Monday, I moved into my office on Monday, I was bringing some boxes in and there was this packet that was sitting on my desk and uh, I opened it up and it was from our children's ministries. It was from all the kids uh, in a bunch of classes um, in the weeks preceding my arrival, they wrote all these notes welcoming me to the church. Yeah, it was the coolest thing. Yeah, so um, I, I sat down. One of the first things I did, I just sat down in my chair and I just started reading them. I just thought, you know, I'm going to read every single one of them and, uh, and just thank God for these kids. And so I was reading through the notes. And there's a few that stood out to me. I wanted to share a couple of them with you this morning. Um, I love this one. Pastor, Paster Brad. I'm Paster Brad. Uh, <laughs> Love this one, the rainbow of hope there, really good. Uh, this next one, I, you know, just stood out to me. Hope you're, hope you're going to like it here. I was just like, yeah, I hope so too, right? Uh, it was really good. Um, before we show this next one, let me just say, this next one, uh, it kind of broke my heart, but at the same time, it inspired me because this next one here is, is from a little girl who just recently moved. Uh, and so she expressed in this just her fears and nervousness, and I just, as I read it, I thought, you know, I mean, isn't that what our kids' ministry is supposed to do, is create an environment where a, a child could say, I'm uncomfortable right now, and I'm, you know, and then and still have just the gratitude to say, hey, thanks for being here, even though it not, might not be my church. I love that. <laughs> so I'm reading these, you know, and then I, I, I'm going through all these, and then I get to this next one, and I didn't quite know what to do with it. <clears throat> I literally, like... I don't know if you all can see that, but up on the upper, that's the Titanic. <laughs> what possesses a child to welcome somebody in a new opportunity to the Titanic? Like, hey, welcome to a sinking ship? Like, what is this all about? So literally, I stopped in that moment, and I just prayed against this child, right? In that moment, I was like, I'm praying against whatever this, if he's prophetic, I am not going to receive that. And then in that moment of like starting to pray, I was like, wait, there's some parent out there that's having to raise this kid. And so I immediately just shifted my prayers and started praying for those parents. I was like, I don't know what got into you. But, uh, but it, was, it, was, it was really hilarious uh, just to sit there. I was stunned. But, um, but what a great way to start, though. Truly, it was such a great blessing. And it actually um, fits perfectly with where we're going to go for the next three weeks. For the next three weeks, we're going to be in a series called Eucharistia. It's the Greek word for gratitude. And uh, I know it seems cliche that going into Thanksgiving that we would take some time to talk about gratitude and thankfulness. Um, you're, you're right. It is cliche. We are talking about it because it is this time of year. It is a time when we start to focus our attention on thankfulness. Um, but there are really more reasons than just the timing of the year that caused me to want to talk about gratitude. And, and, and there's really two things that I want to highlight. First of all, and I'll talk about this over the next several weeks, but it has been proven factually that gratitude, having a deep sense of gratitude in our lives, actually has physiological, emotional, relational effects that are very positive. If we just move through life with a deep sense of gratitude, there are great benefits to us. Psychologists, sociologists, doctors, scientists, they've all studied this. They've all seen this. In fact, this week I was looking at some various scholarly journals and works on the topic of gratitude. I came across one. It's called Time Magazine. Um, thank you, Alex, for laughing at that. It is not scholarly. But I came across this article, and I actually thought it was really great, sort of light, and we'll do more of this as the weeks go on. But there's this one particular author. His name, her name is Jamie Ducarmi, and, and she outlines seven benefits of gratitude. just want to share them with you. Here's seven things that gratitude does in your life. Number one, she said, gratitude can make you more patient. 
Um, in fact, there's this, yeah, there's, this, there's this study done by Northeastern University that actually pr proved that people who felt grateful for small things in their life, the little things, they were able to tolerate life's inconveniences more easily. The, the, life just was easier for them. They were more patient because of their gratitude. They had this deeper sense of connectedness, overall satisfaction with life because of this. Um, so it makes you more patient. Gratitude improves your relationships. The second one, improves your relationships. The Journal of Theoretical Social Psychology said feeling grateful towards your partner and vice versa can improve numerous aspects of your relationship, including feelings of connectedness. Really interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine this week, and he said this. He said, you know, back years ago, he said he and his, and his wife and their marriage, they just sort of drifted apart. You know, they got in this place where they were, they were just sort of living together, not loving each other. That happens, right? Um, they became roommates. They got into the roommate cycle, and he found himself just in this place of stagnancy. And so he said somebody challenged him to just write down 10 things that he was grateful for with his wife, just 10 things that he was just glad about with her. And he told me, he said, I was about halfway through the, the list and I could feel my heart opening to her. I could feel this shift that was taking place as he just began to remind himself of what he loved about her, why he was grateful for her. And so gratitude has this effect. It improves our relationships. Third, um, they've proven this. Another study researchers proved that gratitude improves your self-care, that people who rate high in levels of gratitude also practice other like life-building habits. They exercise, they care for themselves, they eat right, that there's this deep sense of life is good, and so I'm going to take care of the life that God's given me. And so um, they take care of themselves. Number four, um, gratitude can help you sleep. So if you're an insomniac, Maybe you're not grateful. I don't know. But number five, um, I love this one. This one's really helpful for me. Gratitude may help stop you from overeating. Yeah, some of you just moaned like I did when I read that. I was like, okay, so this week when I get out the carton of ice cream, I'm going to make a list of all the things I'm grateful for. And maybe I'll only eat half as much, right? <laughs> this is what they show. They, they actually proved that when you're more gratitude, you have higher um, control over your impulses. You have greater impulse control when you have increased levels of gratitude. Isn't that fascinating? Like neurologically, when you and I are grateful for things, we respond less impulsively to the things that are around us. Number six, gratitude can help ease depression. Um, there was a group of people, they engaged in an exercise for several months called Three Good Things. Three Good Things meant that every single day, without any sort of medication, they simply ended their day and they identified three good things that happened in their day before they went to sleep that night. Those individuals showed remarkable increase in their overall emotional and mental health over the course of that study. In fact, one of the scientists involved with this said this, if there were a drug that did what this did, whoever patented that drug would be rich. He said, gratitude is very powerful. And then the last one relates, it's number seven, is gratitude gives you happiness that lasts. You know, this one we kind of know from experience. You know, the opposite of gratitude is entitlement. Right? And entitlement is this idea, like, when somebody's entitled, it means they move through their day thinking that the universe owes them something, that God owes them something, that, that people owe them something, that their spouses, that their children, that their coworkers owe them something. That's entitlement. And here's what we've all observed. We all know this. I guarantee you've never met an entitled person who is also joyful. <laughs> right? You know, there's never anybody that moves through their days with all of these expectations of others around them that also carries with them a deep sense of resonant joy. That just, those two things can't exist. And so gratitude allows us to be more joyful people for the long haul. So the first reason that I want to talk about gratitude for the next couple of weeks is there are some really positive effects for us. We could use a shot in the arm of what gratitude could do for us. 
But the second reason I want to talk about it is really more important, and I think this is critical that we understand this, because not only is gratitude really useful and beneficial for us, but also gratitude is elusive. Gratitude is incredibly elusive, especially in our culture. We live in a society that is always striving for more. We live in a society, we live in a world, we are always looking to what's next. We attain a goal and immediately we set another one before we even celebrate the last one that was attained. Our culture is always hardwiring us for bigger and better. If you got it, there's something better. If you got it, there's something bigger. And so we're constantly being sent these images or messages that what we have is not enough and there's always something more. And because of that, we have this tendency to reach past whatever it is we have just attained. When we attain something, in the immediate moments after we attain it, we just look beyond those things and we're always reaching for what we don't have. And ultimately, what we wind up with is expectations that are always beyond our grasp. We're always expecting what is just beyond our reach. And, and I know that sometimes, um, in fact, I would say probably most of us in the room, we have moments when we sense that there's something that needs to be improved. There's a relationship, there's maybe, maybe it's your home, maybe it's your finances, maybe it's your own physical body. There are times when we all go, you know what, I'm in a spot, I need to do something about this, I need to make some change. And so we get into certain seasons of situational improvement, if you will. We, we can improve all of these things, but what happens for us oftentimes in our culture is that this genuine desire for change in this society, a genuine desire to say, I want to be a little different next year, to make some New Year's resolutions, oftentimes that turns into a cycle of constant dissatisfaction. So we're not just not changing, we're dissatisfied. There's never enough. We're never good enough. There is never enough. We're never content. I'm just going to confess to you, this is my pattern. Because I live in this culture like you do. I swim in the same culture that you swim in. And my personality is that I'm an achiever. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an improver. I want to make things better. I love excellence. I border on OCD sometimes about how I just want everything the right way. I'm always thinking, how do we improve the situation? How do we make it better? And because of that, that means oftentimes when I reach a goal or I reach an objective, almost immediately, I don't, I don't celebrate it. I just start moving, well, it could have been better, and I guess we'll go here next. Instead of stopping to say, Look at where we've come, and let's rest in this moment, and let's celebrate the goodness. See, in a culture like ours, we can fall into this perpetual state of discontent. We get short-tempered because of it. We're rarely at peace. We're fearful. We're, we're sort of frustrated. Things aren't going to get better. We just always hold this with us. And, and because of that, we actually end up missing out. We miss out on all the beautiful things around us. We miss out on all the achievements that we have accomplished. We miss out on, on the, the grace that God has dropped in our laps. So gratitude, especially for people living in a culture like ours, gratitude can elude us. And, and, and when it does... We miss all the benefits that it possibly could offer us. So let me, just, let me just say this. I want to just relieve the guilt in the room. If you struggle with contentedness, if you struggle with this, if you're in a place where like, you know what, I don't feel grateful very often, can I just like relieve the tension and say, that is not unique to you. It is the direct byproduct of the culture that we live in that tells us, don't be satisfied, there's more. At the same time, it also explains why we need a different perspective. We need, we need different instructions to follow. We need another architectural plan to, to live our lives after, which is why a biblical perspective or a biblical understanding of gratitude is actually so, so viable and valuable to us. And so for the next three weeks, kind of our collective hope 
is that we can restore in us, we can restore moving into Thanksgiving, moving into a time when we're supposed to be grateful, that we can actually restore in our hearts and in our minds a deep sense of gratitude, a deep sense of appreciation for all that God has given us and done for us. So this is week one. And in order to do this, in order to start this conversation, I actually want to take us back to a very critical moment in the life of, of Israel when they're stepping into the life of promise that God has for them. So um, if, you, if you have a Bible with you, it's on your iPad or on your phone or in the pew in front of you, you want to open up to the fifth book of the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to start there, and then I'm going to jump around a lot because this is a topical series the next couple of weeks. But, but we're going to start in chapter 4. And while you're turning there, I just want to give you a little bit of background that the book of Deuteronomy actually records Moses' final conversation with the people of Israel before he stops being their leader and sends them into the land of promise that God had given them. And so Moses is very intentional with what he's saying. He's, he's thought long and hard about how he would instruct them in the days ahead. And in this same moment, we have to recognize the irony that he's telling them what to do as they enter into a season of significant improvement, right? They're going from the desert to the promised land. They're going to a place where now they are going to receive tangibly a blessing that God has promised them. And I think it's really important to see a theme that arises in Moses' language in a time like this. As they enter into a season of blessing and outpouring from God, what he tells them is so significant for us to hear and actually consider him telling us this today. And so I just want you to read with me. Deuteronomy chapter 4, we're going to start reading in verse 9. We see this theme that starts to run through this. He says this in verse 9. He says, only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. Now let me just remind you of a couple things here. He says, watch yourselves, watch yourselves, watch, pay attention to yourselves. Why? So that you do not forget the things that your eyes have seen, but he's referring to their past. You're about to go into this land of blessing, and as you enter into this place where you are going to receive blessing, I don't want you to let these things fade from your heart. I want you to teach them to your children and your children's children. I don't want you to, to forget these things. And in verse 10, the big idea, he says, remember. Remember. I want you to remember. In the middle of your situation improving, I want you to stop and take time and to look back at your history, and I want you to remember what God has done in your life. In fact, a little later, he says it again. If you flip over to chapter 8, he continues on. There's the same theme, and he says this beginning in verse 1. He says, be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord has promised on oath to your ancestors. And then he says it again. Remember, think, look back. Remind yourself how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Remember that the Lord led you. In fact, we're not going to read on here, but if you were to read on, what you would see is Moses begin to outline all of these critical moments. All these times, like remember this, remember that, remember this, remember these times. Do you remember when God was with you? He's reminding them of these times, and he's saying, don't forget this. Eventually, you get to verse 18, and he says this, remember the Lord your God. 
For it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. Remember the Lord your God. This, this word remember, not only is it a theme or a thread we see running through Moses' words here, but you, when you begin to look at the Bible in, in its entirety, you start to see that it's everywhere. God is constantly reminding people, telling people, I want you to remember who you are. I want you to remember where you came from. I want you to remember those moments when I was there for you. I want you to remember what it was like without me and what it is like now with me. I want you to remember these things. I want you to remember what you've seen. Why? Because when I see the generosity of God, the instant response in my heart is gratitude towards him. I want, you to rem I want you to remember. I want you to look back. I want you to see how far you've come. Every now and then, Sherry, my wife, and I, we'll, um, we'll just kind of look back on our history together. We've been married um, quite a while. And, you know, there's certain events that uh, I, some of you are laughing because you know that just now I forgot how long we've been married. <laughs> And she's not here this morning, but she might watch online, and so I don't want to mess up. But I think we're closing out on 25, something like that. But, but certain moments, you know, they trigger memories. And, uh, and in particular, this season that we're in right now where we're moving, um, it's bringing up memories. And, and just recently, I started thinking about the first apartment we moved into when we first got married. Our first apartment, um, it was amazing. It was a two-bedroom. Yeah, a two-bedroom. I remember we got a two-bedroom apartment when we got married, and I thought we had made it. We got the nicest garage sale couch. We got this coffee table from a thrift store. I think we repainted it 10 times in the first nine years of our marriage. It was this amazing thing. I made this entertainment center out of crates that I think was probably the most ridiculous thing I've ever done, but we loved it. And I remember looking back, and, and we have these moments, we look back on those early years and we're like, can you believe what God has done in our life? Can you believe where we are today? Look at our children. Look at, I mean, just all those things from those humble beginnings where we thought we had just like, man, life was good. And then to look year after year, decade after decade and say, oh, no, that was just the beginning. There's something about looking back and seeing where you have come that, that causes you to be grateful. When I think about those days and I look at my life, I go, God, I never would have dreamed that my life would be the way it is. And yet in that moment, I thought it was the greatest moment ever. See, generosity is, is what causes gratitude in our hearts. Anytime we feel gratitude, it's because at some level, we have recognized at a very deep level the sacrifice somebody else made to give us something, right? Somebody invites you over for a meal. Somebody gives you a car. I don't know. Somebody does something for you that's kind. Gratitude happens when in our hearts and in our minds and our souls, we, we take enough time to identify with the sacrifice that somebody has made and has been generous towards us. When we see the generosity of another person and we really understand they gave, they sacrificed, there's this instant response inside of us that says, I'm grateful for what that person has done for us. So, so gratitude has this amazing effect. It, gratitude, it shapes us, it changes us. But let me just tell you this, life-shaping gratitude is a response to the generosity of God. Yes, generosity has its benefits here and there, a few things that, that might help us. But if you want life-shaping gratitude, it is a response to the generosity of God. When you and I begin to see how generous God has been with us, that actually stirs up another kind of generosity that radically shifts things inside of us. It is exponentially more significant to, to be grateful for what God has done for us. So, so he tells us, I want you to remember 
I want you to remember because he understands that the gravitational pull of our culture and our own minds and our own hearts is to forget what he's done. And he says, no, no, I want you to remember. I don't want you to forget these things. Now, there are three things over the next three weeks that we're going to talk about in terms of God's generosity. And I want to just start with the first one this morning. I know I've spent a long time getting to this. But the first one that I want to talk about is, I think, one of the most significant expressions of God's generosity, and that is his presence with us. I want to talk about the, the generosity of God's presence. And I think that's really significant for us in our culture. Because when we think about generosity, our minds typically go to money. They go to cars, they go to houses, they go to physical blessings. Even with God, oftentimes we say, you know, hashtag blessed. It's because there's some sort of physical blessing in our life. And yet I believe the most significant form of generosity from God to us is the generosity of his presence with us. So to unpack this, I just want us to go a little further back than Deuteronomy in the biblical narrative. And I want us to go um, to Genesis chapter 1, the creation account. So, So Genesis 1, where the Bible opens up. The story begins with creation that's in chaos. Let's listen to what it says. It says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then verse 2 says, now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So in the second verse of the first chapter in the first book in our Bible, we're introduced to the Spirit of God, God's Spirit. Now, when biblical authors use the phrase God's Spirit, they're referring to his personal presence, the personal presence of God. Anytime you see God's Spirit referenced, you're seeing a description in which the God of the universe is present in a tangible, personal, relatable way. That's what's being described. In fact, um, the Hebrew word that's translated the Spirit of God is the Hebrew word ruach. You kind of hear like a little guttural thing when I say that. I want you to practice it with me. Just say ruach. Ruach, you guys are Hebrew scholars already. So the Ruach of God is what's being described here. The Ruach is the wind of God, the breath of God, the force of God, the presence of God. Ruach is like, it's like the air we breathe. When you and I breathe in, there is vitality, there is life, there is power that comes from just the air that we breathe. The Ruach, there's this vitality, there is this energy, it is the presence of God. And so in Genesis, what we're reading about is the Ruach of God hovering over the water. The personal presence, the vitality, the power of of the God of the universe is hovering over the water. And as he does, the chaos is turned to order. And what is lifeless is turned to life. And what is non-existent now exists. That's where the story starts. The story in the Bible, as we open it up, begins by introducing us to the Ruach of God and the Ruach of God hovers over the water. Now, as you begin to read the Bible and you start to dive through the different stories and pages, what you see is that the Ruach of God then shifts and begins to operate very differently. And now the Ruach of God begins to hover over individuals. 
the, hover, the, the Ruach of God begins to meet with individuals, need, begins to fill individuals, come upon individuals. And so we have Joseph, and we have Saul, we have Gideon, we have various individuals in whom the Bible says the same Ruach that hovered over the water now hovers over them for a very specific moment, for a very specific purpose. There's a reason that the Ruach is now moving in this person's life. The Old Testament prophets, as you read about them and hear about them, they were men and women, they were people, individuals, they had the Ruach of God who was upon them, the Ruach of God moving in them. It's this beautiful thing to see, and yet it's a fraction of what we would understand as we move towards the New Testament. Fast forward to the New Testament, fast forward to Jesus. The presence of God is now expressed in two distinct ways that I want to I talk about. First of all, when you come to the New Testament, God's presence is now two distinct realities. First of all, we have Jesus himself. And then secondly, we have a promise that Jesus makes to us. So, so this first part, Jesus himself. I want you just to notice something in, in the book of John, the gospel of John. John does something in his gospel to begin in a way that connects us with the beginning of the Old Testament. Where his story of Jesus begins, it, it lines up with where the entire story begins. Remember, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When you look at John, the book of John, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the beginning... Similar language, he's identifying with this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. And without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. And then you get to verse 14, and he says, That Word that was in the beginning became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. What John is describing is a word that theologians use. It's called the incarnation. It is, it is God becoming flesh. It is God being present with us in a form and a function that we now can relate to and understand. We can see God in a very physical sense in the person of Jesus. And so Jesus is the very presence of God, the Ruach. Now we see the God of the universe in the person of Jesus. But then later, Jesus in his presence makes a promise that absolutely should stun us. In fact, in this sort of material, physical world that we live in, we get lulled to sleep. We get so focused on what we can feel and what we can touch and observe with our eyes that we, that we, we stop listening to some of the things that get said. So what Jesus promises us should rattle our cages a little bit. It should wake us from our slumber because Jesus promises some things that are remarkable as it relates to the Ruach of God. Listen to Matthew 28, verse 19. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Some of you guys have heard this verse before, a couple of you, maybe once before. Um, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. But then listen to this. This is, this is so mystical and difficult to understand because Jesus then says, and surely I am with you always, even until the end of the age. He's making a promise of his presence. I will be with you. I'll be with you forever. He's with us. Emmanuel, God with us, didn't just stay with us for a short period of time. He says, no, no, I'm going to stay with you. I'm with you, but I'm going to remain with you. So then the natural question is, well, how? How do you actually do this? How does that happen? If you turn over to John chapter 20, we read this. Verse 21 of John 20, it says again, this is after the resurrection, it says again, Jesus said, peace be with you. 
As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, first of all, let me just say, this is one of the strangest moments in the life of Jesus with his disciples. Like Jesus, you think about how bad his breath was after three days in a grave? This is right after that moment. And it literally says, he's like, peace be with you. And then he goes, like blows his breath on them. Like, I think sometimes we forget like what's being said. That is so weird that Jesus is blowing on his disciples, right? But he's blowing on them and there's a metaphor in his blowing. And the metaphor is, it is the wind, right? It is the breath. It is the vitality of God. And as Jesus breathes on them, he's using a metaphor. He's reminding them of the creation when the spirit of God hovered over the waters and he breathes on them and he says, now you receive the Ruach. You receive the Ruach. And in this moment, Jesus is saying, the Ruach will come upon you. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we talked about this last week. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. It's on you. God's empowering presence is going to come upon you. God's personal, relatable presence will be made known to you. And so what was an occasional reality for people of old now becomes a normative experience for those who love and follow Jesus. We receive the Holy Spirit who is with us. The Ruach of God is upon us. Which, by the way, this reveals something about the gospel that I think we need to understand. That the gospel is not simply a story about what God has done for us, But it is a story about what God has done to be with us. The gospel is this story that says, I want you to know my presence. And I have gone to these lengths so that it can be known. The Ruach of God has been given to you. The Ruach of God has been given to me, to all of us. He is present with us. You know, I... I, uh, like Alex, I have the privilege of raising three daughters, and I'm almost done, I think. Because <clears throat> I got one that's married, and I'm like, when does this end? When do I stop being a dad? Like, when do you, when, when do I, is it like a financial moment? that we, Somebody tell me, when does this happen? When it's like, okay, we're really done now? But anyways, I've, I've raised three daughters, and uh, I have to just say, man, I'm so grateful. I don't, I, I mean, like, boys are cool, but I, I wouldn't trade raising girls for anything. And, uh, and just the way that they look at their dad and love their dad is priceless. And uh, um, also, I think boys probably stink. And so I like raising girls. <clears throat> but, you know, one of the most humbling things, one of the most humbling things about raising girls is how my presence can change things for them. Um, bad dreams. Bad friends, big spiders, long days, stress at school. If I walk in the room, if they're on the couch and they're having one of those days, if I walk in the room, I don't have to say anything. All I have to do is sit down next to my girls and I put my arm around them. And I can feel my girls just sort of melt. They just sort of melt into me. And it's like I can feel all the pressure and all the stress and all the anxiety just, just sort of leave them as I just sit with them. And I don't say anything. That's for moms. They are the ones that, they're the ones that talk sense, right? I just sit. I just sit and I hold them. 
And, and there have been so many times over the last, you know, 20 years when I'll be gone for a couple of days or maybe just gone for a single day and I'll come home and she's, Sherry's in tune like, hey, you know, one of, one of our girls just, there's nothing that's going to fix this but you. And so I, I can't tell you the number of times I've gone in late at night and I just like snuggled up in bed, you know, and curled up and held one of my girls and just felt that and realized that's all they needed was my presence. Because presence, the, the, the generosity of presence just does something to change us. It just shapes us. So imagine when your heavenly father and my heavenly father says, I just want to be with you. Imagine the wisdom and the peace and the joy when we get a deep sense. He's given us his spirit so that we could know. I'm, I'm giving you my spirit so that you know that I'm, I'm with you. I routinely forget that one of the greatest acts of generosity from my Heavenly Father is His presence. And in this season in which I want to raise my gratitude and I want to see your gratitude raise, I just want to make us aware our God is with us Amen. and He is for us. He's there to comfort us and give us wisdom. We are not alone. You are not alone. You have been given power by the Ruach of God. So right now, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And we're going to close with a song today. And, you know, sometimes I just think we need to take some of this. And, like, I could keep talking. But sometimes we just need a moment to just let this sink in. And so we're just going to have a song. We're going to respond to this. We're going to have an opportunity just to think about this. And then in just a couple of minutes, I'll come back up and I'll close us. But in the meantime, would you stand with me? And I want to pray for us. Lord, it is so easy to move through a material, physical world and lose sight, lose sense of your presence. And this whole story that's been written for us to sit and reflect on is a story that says you are a God who has come near, you are a God who is with us, you are a God who is present, you are a God who comforts, brings peace, brings power, brings wisdom. And in this moment, Lord, I just think a bunch of us need to be reminded of how generous you have been with your spirit. Lord, that it doesn't matter if we're coaching a sports team or showing up at work or sitting in a classroom or in front of a classroom, wherever we find ourselves in a cubicle someplace, Lord, that no matter where we find ourselves, you are near us. You haven't limited our experience of you to this box, this room. You are with us everywhere we go. And this morning, Lord, we just want to be reminded of that generosity. We want to lean in and let your spirit fall on us. We love you. We thank you. We are grateful towards you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.